0: Welcome to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. There's no shortage of discussion these days on China's will to power. After living in the shadow of Western-style development for the greater part of the last 200 years, the country is in the throes of crafting its own vision of what it means to be a modern economic power. That doesn't always sit well with other countries, and particularly the US, that's grown accustomed to its own hard-won hegemony. China's demonstration of its newfound strength is showing up in dozens of ways, militarily as in its testing of its territorial rights with India and the South China Sea, politically as reflected in its imposition of new security laws in Hong Kong, and diplomatically squaring off, as it were, with the U.S. over issues relating to trade and technology transfer. The country is also investing in a series of longer-term strategies to ensure its economic and political rebound, in some cases thinking well ahead of the curve, and ahead of other nations like the US, UK, and Japan, all mired in their own set of domestic issues. In this week's episode, we tackle China's quest to deploy one of the world's first comprehensive digital currencies. DCEP, or DCEP, is the chosen acronym for China's so-called Digital Currency Electronic Payment Platform, now under development and prime for piloting. What are digital currencies, and why is China so enthusiastically pushing to convert its currency from a cash to a digital equivalent? Here to update us is Zenon Kapran, founder and director of Kaprin Asia, a fintech boutique strategy and research firm. Zenon is a hands-down subject matter expert, as you're sure to witness in the course of our discussion. I open by asking him to explain the reason and purpose for digital currencies. And later in the discussion, we explore why China is so keen on the idea. Zenon Capron, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Asia. Uh, We're going to have a conversation about digital currencies, and I hear you're the guy to talk to. Oh, thanks for having me, Steve. Um, I think just there's not a better place to start with this very big issue, which is uh, breaking it down and explaining to the listeners, what is a digital currency?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it all started with Bitcoin a number of years ago. And so the basic idea of Bitcoin was a, a decentralized form of value exchange. Um, So if you think about traditional payments today, if you make a payment uh, from, say, Singapore to the U.S., that would typically go through the SWIFT network and across the correspondent banking network to get uh, to its intended recipient in the U.S. And the fees for that could be relatively high. The traceability varies uh, in in terms of knowing where the payment is. And so Bitcoin was really designed to solve a lot of the challenges around person-to-person transfers of, of value and so as Bitcoin became more established and and people started doing research around blockchain technology and then distributed ledger technology, they realized that it could have applications for central bank digital currencies or CBDCs as we, as we, as we call them today. And fundamentally what a CBDC would be is a digitized form of cash. Um, in many places like China, which we'll talk about later, it's considered M zero. Uh, so it's actually replacing cash. And in others, it may have a, a component of M one where it's, it's not directly cash, but more money in the bank. And for the average individual, if this kind of system is properly integrated and then implemented, they won't notice that much of a difference. Uh, if you think about money that you have today, oftentimes you're using credit cards, or you might be using a mobile wallet, it's all digital anyway. It's, it's, it's zeros and ones, and it's money that's stored virtually at a, at a bank around the world, wherever wherever you're taking your money from. So there really shouldn't be that much difference. But it does have some profound implications for governments themselves, which I, I think we'll get to a little bit later on. But fundamentally, it's, it's the
0: digitization. It's the further digitization of, of cash and, and money that we would use on a regular basis. Yeah, how would a conversion from a paper-based to a digital currency be carried out? What would that entail? Well, most of the central bank digital currencies right
1: now that are being looked at are sponsored or being pushed by one of the central banks around the world. And I mean, one of the functions of a central bank in the U.S. or in China or Singapore is to print money and to uh, you know c- control monetary policy for the. Uh, for the government and for the country. And so, in most cases, the conversion would involve the federal government of any country, uh, first of all. and, And it still remains exactly to be seen how this is done. Uh, Certain countries are looking at the central bank distributing through commercial banks. Uh, The other thing that's being explored is the central bank distributing directly to individuals. And so presumably, you know, there would be a certain amount of the traditional kind of fiat paper currency that would be taken up and then that would be destroyed and converted into um, the digital currency in whichever country it's at. So in in most cases, they won't they they wouldn't necessarily be using this as a as a way to expand the money supply, uh, but it would be uh, you know potentially along the lines of what they would do regularly in terms of regulatory re- regular monetary expansion
0: that's happening in the U S or China or any of the large economies around the world these days. So, it would be a gradual decommissioning of cash and replacement with a digital uh, equivalent. Is that the idea over a three, five, 10 year period?
1: Yeah. Well, I think five, 10 years would be a little bit long. I think probably you'd be looking at three to five years. Uh, yeah, it would be a gradual transition. I think, you know, when you look at experiments with money around the world, one of the ones that comes to mind is India's demonetization push uh, from a couple of years ago. And that really was, uh, to be quite open, a little bit ill-conceived, not the idea of demonetization, but how it was implemented, because it was implemented very quickly. And and so people were struggling to get money in their pockets and and get rid of the bills that were no longer going to be accepted. So I think... uh, we certainly wouldn't want that to happen in any of these transitions, so in many cases it'll be a gradual transition because at the end of the day you're involving the the citizens of your country in doing this and in China is a good example i mean China's one of the countries that's furthest along and it's cbdc but it 's also one of the riskiest transitions that there is because you have one point three going on one point four billion people there, and if all of a sudden a few hundred million of them can't access money for whatever reason. That's a big failure. So it'll definitely be a gradual transition for
0: any of the countries that are, that are looking to shift to a central bank digital currency. Zenon, we're hearing more and more about prospects for a digital currency now. Uh, why now? What's changed? Why is there more about this in the press? And why are more countries prepared to take on pilot projects in order to test uh, the, uh, um, the prospects for a digital currency?
1: I think there are a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, when you look at governments generally globally, I think they would prefer to have everything digital if it was possible. Uh, the the beauty of digital currency for either either in a um, in a traditional form like what we have today with. You know, your bank accounts being represented by zeros and ones or a central bank digital currency style is the traceability and visibility into what's happening. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. dollar is one of the most fungible currencies in the world and because of that, it's also used to for money laundering and terrorism financing and all kinds of illegal activities because it's widely accepted. Uh, nearly wherever you go in the world, somebody can take a $1,000 and somebody else will be willing to give them something for that because the the U.S. dollar is this reserve this global reserve currency so I think governments really look at electronic currency as a way of having more visibility into what's happening with their digital currencies. So that's one of the first reasons, I think, is traceability and visibility. The second reason is that cash is just really expensive. Um, we've done studies that that show the cost of cash is about 3 to 5% annual. So that's including when you look at things like printing. And then there's a lot that people don't consider in terms of transportation and storage. I mean, if you're looking to store a million dollars in $1 bills, that's, that's it's quite a stack of money and it's quite a bit of physical space. Um, As well, when you transport it, you need to have it in an armored truck and it needs to be secured and then just printing it itself. Uh, You have the initial run of the the bills or the coins. And then, uh, especially with bills, you have to replace them after a period of time because they get worn out. So there's the cost of cash as well. And I think the third reason is just the progress that's been making on other digital currencies. Now, Bitcoin has been around for a while, but really hasn't had that mass adoption um, that many of the Bitcoin maximalists would would have predicted. But when you, when you have things like Libra that are coming to the table, all of a sudden, you know, Libra, and you think about the Facebook ecosystem and the number of people that have access to a Facebook property, whether that be a, a Facebook Messenger itself or a WhatsApp, that could really change the game. And so I think governments are, are really pushing to get ahead on that. And then I guess the final reason I would say is is there's a little bit of geopolitics in, as involved as well. I mean, one of the things that's been mentioned for China is that they they want to get ahead of the US and they want to digitize the renminbi such that it plays to their greater plans of having the renminbi be a more important trade currency globally. So I think there is some competition between the countries and and everybody wants to be there first to, to have a digital currency because it, it allows you to exchange that currency much more easily. Uh, now, you know, if I'm sitting here in Singapore, if I want to get access to US dollars, it's not terribly easy to do that if I don't have a US dollar account, you know, there's work that has to be done. But if there's a US dollar central bank digital currency, perhaps it'll just be as easy as downloading that wallet onto my phone. And then I can receive money from you, Steve, or send it to my wife or or whatever the case
0: may be. Mm. You've raised a lot there, and let me, let me come back and touch back on security. Um, it, lots of concerns around that, and, and, and I guess it requires us to have a short discussion on blockchain. Uh, is it, in fact, more secure than, than a cash-based economy, or are there si- certain situations and concerns that people still have about the technology, and therefore that would be the thing holding many governments back?
1: Yeah, it's a a really good point. And and when you think about cash, I mean, cash to a certain extent is very safe, but it's very dangerous uh, from the consumer's perspective. It's very safe insofar that nobody can take that away from you without your consent, Uh, whether your consent is voluntary or involuntary. You know, you can always be robbed, but short of somebody physically taking that cash away from you, you know, that's sitting in your mattress or sitting in your dresser drawer or whatever it is. One of the challenges with central bank digital currency is that. All of a sudden, the government could take a haircut. Uh, so this happened in, in, uh, Cyprus and Greece a, a couple of years ago is that the government all of a sudden decided to take a i, I don 't remember the exact amount but a, a four to five percent haircut on all of the deposits in the the banks around the country and at that point, the amount of cash that you could take out of an ATM was limited as well, so you could only take out a couple hundred euros worth of cash so if you have a thousand euros sitting in your bank account and all of a sudden the government says hey i 'm going to take 5% of that there's not much you can do about that so in the, in that context your money is not secure so in in one context you know having physical cash in your pocket can be a little bit dangerous if you live in a dangerous place i mean certainly here in singapore or there where you are in the us uh, you know it's not so dangerous that you're going to get robbed on the street but there's always that risk that somebody could take it from you on the flip side of that if you have your money stored in a digital wallet on your phone, if that's secured with biometrics and potentially two-factor authentication, that could be a lot more secure than having physical money in your pocket. But it also opens up the possibility that if your government is is not exactly acting in your best interest, but in the interest of the country as a whole, it, it may provide more risk around that side. I mean, you could you could see this is essentially programmable money, right? So governments around the world can decide what happens with that money, when it's usable, when it's not. So the government could shut down your wallet or shut down all of the money that's in your name, or they could just take part of the money that's in your name. So it does raise some interesting questions on both sides of that. Uh, but you know, technically, I think the security is a lot down to what the digital wallet is and, and what the safeguards that are in place around that are. And, and in certain countries, you know, that, that is much more advanced because uh, hundreds of millions of individuals are using their phones for transactions every day. So there is some fairly good security that's been developed around that.
0: And, and, and this control issue for governments is more than just whether they uh, honor or disperse or not. It's also about what they know when you use that digital currency. They can now track and identify transactions in ways that they never could before. Could you discuss that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so you can kind of look at that from two different sides. I mean, one is the money laundering, um, terrorism financing side of things. So people that are using their cash for uh, nefarious purposes, or they're doing tax evasion, especially, especially when you're in a country that's capital controlled, like in India or China, uh, you know, the the individual Chinese nationals can only convert $50,000 worth of renminbi into foreign currency in any one year. Uh, so, you know, people who have tens of millions of dollars have come up with unique ways of getting their money out of the country, whether that's being buying property in foreign markets or gambling in Macau and then cashing out in Hong Kong dollars. So that's something that the government isn't particularly happy about because in a capital controlled currency, you know being able to control the inflows and outflows are a critical part of that impossible trifecta of of controlling your monetary policy that china needs to keep its hands on so there's that element of things as well the the other element that's kind of interesting is is being able to know what the money is used for and i go back to the china example and i apologize for using it so much but they've just been so far along on this process that it's that it's probably the best example china has a problem with funding for individuals and SMEs. Uh, And this is largely down to the credit system in China because there's not a lot of credit information about individuals in China. So it's very difficult for somebody to go into a bank um, and take out a loan. Uh, It's also very costly for the bank. Uh, We did a study that looked at Bank of China's lending costs, and it costs about $250 US when you count in all of the people that are involved in that transaction and the cost of approving or rejecting a loan application. So that's tremendously expensive. And if you're looking to borrow $1,000, you know, if the cost of issuing that loan is $250, it's a non-starter to begin with. Even if it's $10,000, it's, you know, you're already giving away a large percentage of that loan to the cost of originating that loan. So a lot of the state-owned enterprises um, or the state Owned banks rather are lending directly to state owned enterprises. So, Bank of China, rather than lending to Zenon, will be more likely to lend to PetroChina or Costco or one of the large state owned enterprises in China, which meant that individuals and SMEs are are out of luck in terms of getting lending and getting credit from their banking organizations. The government recognizes this as a problem, but it's very difficult to control that. Many times in the past, the government has said, "Look, we're going to banks. We're going to give you an extra uh, couple points of reserves so that you can lend out more money to uh, your customers, and we want you to direct that lending towards SMEs." Well, sometimes the bank do actually lend to SMEs, but a lot of times they just go back to their old habits and lend to SOEs, the state-owned enterprises. So what you could do with programmable money is you could say, look, banks, you have to lend out $100 million to SMEs. Here's $100 million in central bank digital currency. Now that central bank digital currency could be kind of dormant Until it gets in the hands of the SMEs. So in this way, the government could actually control who's able to use that money. So if the banks decide we're going to transfer this 100 million RMB or $100 million into a state-owned enterprise, state-owned enterprises receives it and wouldn't be able to use it because it's not activated for them. But once it gets in the hands of an SME, then it becomes active and people can use it. So there's there's two different elements of that control and visibility that are, that are really interesting. I mean, one is kind of to patch up holes and tax evasion, money laundering, and terrorism financing. But the other is really looking at how this money is being used. And again, that goes back to the point of the governments really wanting to have more visibility into their currencies, and why they're Largely on board with the idea of a central bank digital currency.
0: Yeah, it's it's really like a two-sided coin, isn't it? One side being control, the other side being efficiency. And and I can see both sides of this. But it it's interesting when you t- t- discuss this. It, it it's almost like it can be. Um, Turned on, or, uh, or or when it gets into the hands of the intended receiver, then by I guess inputting a code, or how do they activate it? How do they make it usable? Is um, that happen on the user side, or is that happen on the on the central bank side? Well, in theory, it could happen automatically. I mean, it,
1: the, so the way the implementation of most of these central bank digital currencies around the world that they're looking at right now is some form of digital wallet. Um, And so this digital wallet would exist in, you know, in in the network somewhere, and you would have a code that's associated with, it. say, a a 15 or 20-digit code that would identify your unique wallet. Uh, So, you know, depending on the device that you're using, you could potentially access that wallet from your computer, from your phone, from a tablet, or in certain cases... You know, if you're receiving money, the people just need to know your address, your wallet address, and they can send you money. There's no need for you to actually um, be online to receive money into your wallet, much like your bank account today. If I want to send you money, I just send it. And the next time you log in, you'll see that you've received money. Um, But the activation could just be automatically connected to the wallet. Uh, So, you know, my central bank digital currency wallet could be labeled as a retail wallet. Uh, and so once the money hits my retail wallet, then it becomes activated if that, if that money is earmarked for me. So it wouldn't necessarily need to be activated on the user side. What we do anticipate happening is that at least in that, you know, the three to five year transition, when you look at things like Alipay or WeChat Pay, so the two largest uh, mobile payment platforms in China, uh, most likely there would be a central bank digital currency wallet in there as well. So you would have your traditional Chinese renminbi, Chinese yuan wallet in your Alipay. And then you would have a central bank digital currency wallet in your Alipay as well. So that would be the, the element of kind of user choice that would be there as well Is that, you know, for a period of time, as we transition to the central bank digital currencies, you will probably have two different wallets and two different bank accounts. Um, one being the virtual digital currency account and one being your traditional bank account uh, that that people will go through. So there might be some some user selection around that, but a lot of the programming that we
0: talked about before, it could be handled automatically by the system. Mm. You know, I'm glad you raised Alipay and WeChat Pay. I mean, it's been a phenomenal run in China, the transition of your average consumer moving from cash uh, and, and paper-based to digital currencies and using these e-wallets, uh, just phenomenal rise in the last 5 to 7 years uh, is the the fact that the governments now exploring aggressively a digital currency solution an attempt to keep up or even surpass what Alipay or WeChat Pay has already created Alipay launched in
1: 2004 and and it was initially designed to solve the trust issue in e-commerce so you know if you look back in 2004 if you ordered something on Taobao or Tmall which are the Alibaba e-commerce platforms you would Either do cash on delivery or China Union Pay actually did have a payment interface that you could use, but it wasn't designed specifically for e-commerce. It was designed for one-way transactions. Now, if you think about when you buy something from Amazon.com, you're typically using your credit card to do that. And so the credit card and Amazon both have repudiation um, Uh, systems built in. So if whatever you buy is broken, or you never receive it, or there's some other problem with it, you can either talk to Amazon about getting your money back, or you can talk to the credit card company about getting your money back. That didn't exist in China in 2004. And so Alipay was really designed to solve that issue of trust in e-commerce. So basically, the way it worked and still works is that When you receive, when you order something online, the money is automatically deducted from your account, and then it sits in escrow for two weeks. During that two weeks, the merchant ships you the good, and then you have up until that two-week mark to accept or reject that transaction. If you receive the good and everything looks fine, you accept it, and money is released to the merchant. If you have a problem with it, you flag it, and the money is held while you resolve the issue with the merchant. And then if the two weeks expire and you haven't done either, then the money is automatically received to the merchant because they assume that you're happy with the transaction. So Alipay was initially designed to solve that issue of trust in e-commerce and then have it expanded to all these other financial platforms and services. When a couple of years ago, when the government decided that, okay, we need to have more regulation and visibility into what's happening on these digital payments, they set up a platform called Nets Union, or in Chinese, Wanglian. And basically, what it could be considered is a central clearinghouse for digital payment transactions. So much like a Visa or MasterCard clear uh, credit card transactions in, in most countries around the world, China UnionPay cleared all of the local credit card and debit charges in China. So effectively, this Nets Union was the mobile payment or digital payment equivalent of China UnionPay for digital payments. Now, Creating that system, I mean, obviously, the government needs to have um, you know, a robust, uh, scalable system to allow for the transactions that are going to be going across that. I mean, at its peak on Singles Day, which is 11.11 in China, Alipay processes upwards of 120,000 transactions per second. Now, to give you an idea of scale, uh, the Visa network, although they don't publish these numbers, people estimate that the Visa transactions per second are about 70,000 transactions per second. So this is nearly double that amount. And so if you think about this Wanglian needing to be able to process all of those transactions, they need to have really good technology behind them. And so the government actually set this Wanglian platform up as a private public partnership. And so the public was obviously the government that was involved, but the private was. And Financial and Tencent that helped to design the system. Similarly, when you look at credit scoring in China, credit scoring, uh, the government pushed that on to Alipay or, well, Alibaba at the time and now and Financial and Tencent to create credit scoring platforms. So there's been a long history between the government and these technology companies of co-developing platforms. And so our belief is that uh, these platforms, the 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 DCEP, the platform, that's the Chinese Central Bank digital currency, is being developed in partnership with some of these other technology players. Um, so we don't see it. We believe that there will be an option within Alipay and WeChat Pay to have a DCEP wallet, uh, a digital currency electronic payments wallet, which is the name of the uh, Chinese Central Bank digital currency. Uh, and the, thing that, the other thing that people forget is the usability and the customer experience. I mean, one of the reasons that these platforms have been so successful is because they are very customer-focused. And if you've used one of them, the customer experience is really great. Uh, not only can you get to everything in a couple of clicks, but there's everything from ordering food online to ordering a car to paying your bills. There's so many different applications and functionalities in each of these digital wallets it would be very difficult for the government or any of the banks to replicate that. So we believe that, it, you know, it from a fundamental customer experience perspective, it won't really pull people away from using Alipay and WeChat Pay. But regardless of that, we, we feel that they will be involved in the uh, the
0: central bank digital currency in some form or another. Zenon, it sounds just to hear you talk about it that China is actually almost light years ahead of many other markets around the world if not even some of the top markets um, the, the, the level of, of just precise coordination uh, the public-private partnering uh, approach the idea that they've got the four top uh, government banks involved with this pilot but then also including you know the the mobile providers as well because as as necessary network providers against the success of this pilot I mean at all levels it sounds like they're rolling this out um, with considerable Flair, um, uh, lots of checks and balances, and um, some pretty high levels of sophistication. How would you assess uh, their, the work they've done so far vis-a-vis other markets uh, that might be contemplating digital currency?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, light years is is light years in this environment means uh, years instead of instead of you know hundreds of years because everything is moving so quickly, and, and China moves on china speed i mean if you look at the development of fintech in general in china it it's been very rapid compared to other markets and the adoption of things like mobile wallets is is uh, certainly far ahead from other markets you know i think central bank digital currencies are kind of like blockchain in general I mean, blockchain is a really interesting solution for a problem that may not exist or doesn't exist in a lot of places. But because it's new and it's shiny, a lot of people are very interested in it. And, you know, things have to be built on blockchain because it provides all these advantages. But when you really break the business model apart and break down the technology, you don't often need blockchain to do what you need to do. Sometimes a distributed database uh, accomplishes the same objectives. And I kind of think similar to central bank digital currencies. Uh, the Bank of England published a paper a couple of months ago that's a really good resource for any of the listeners that uh, want to learn more about this. But their conclusions were somewhat lukewarm on central bank digital currencies. You know, they they saw some benefits and they saw a lot of challenges with it as well. So certain countries, uh, there there's probably uh, about fifty or sixty countries around the world that are seriously looking at central bank digital currency. So including China and the US and Singapore even, that are, you know, somewhere in the process of moving towards a digital currency. I think if we look 50 years down the line, certainly we won't have cash anymore. It will all be digital at that point and, and have digital wallets. How quickly that happens depends on the market. The characteristics of China make it very unique. I mean, the fact that it is a capital-controlled currency, the fact that they have had challenges with money flows in the past, and the fact that it's a, a different type of government that has a, um, a large interest in monitoring and maintaining a view on what's happening in the country it makes it kind of an obvious choice for a first mover in this space. Cause I think there's, uh, you know, a lot of challenges that they want to address using the central bank digital currency. And uh, to be honest, I mean, I think they've been spurred on a little bit by Libra as well. I and mean, Libra would be effectively an open platform that could replace the usage of any national, at least in its first iteration, could have replaced the use of any national currency. Um, so I think the government, the Chinese government recognized, okay, this is something that we really need to be ahead of and have have worked to uh, try and do that with the central bank digital currency. So I think that that's a lot of the reason that they are really kind of pushing ahead with this and, and trying to get ahead of where everybody else is. Now, you know, do they have all the tools to implement this faster than anybody else? Not necessarily. You know, I think if the U.S. government had really looked at a central bank digital currency and decided, okay, we're going to do this, they probably could have done it quicker. Um, you know, a smaller population, uh, probably a, a larger financial industry to be able to pull this off. But at the same time, the drivers really aren't there as much for a a US as it would be for China, because of for the reasons I mentioned before, I mean, China with the capital controls and everything else makes it a little bit more challenging for the country to maintain that uh, control. So I think those are a lot of the drivers that have impacted uh, this change and pushed China ahead.
0: Is there a first mover advantage here? I mean, is there are countries who get this out to market, make the conversion faster than others, are they setting the standard for others? Or is there enough flexibility in the blockchain platform and the blockchain technology to allow every market to have its own means of delivering its own unique set of digital currencies?
1: When you think about the larger countries like the China and the U.S., it's inevitable that they all have their own that's tied to their own um, national currency. You could see in smaller countries or countries that have dollarized, um, you know, some some African nations, potentially some uh, Asian, Asia Pacific nations that don't have a, a large, um, uh, you know, necessarily the infrastructure or the technology uh, expertise to be able to develop. Their own central bank digital currency. You could see them tagging along with other larger countries. Either you know, the larger country like the U.S. sets up its own um, digital currency backbone, and then uh, perhaps in Mexico or a Canada piggybacks on the back of that and using the same technology, but with their own national currency. You could potentially see that happening uh, around markets. So it will definitely be the larger markets first that are really because they have the most. Uh, the most to lose and the most to win from having a digital currency in place. Um, I, I think w- with with China, the one of the things that's really been pushed is the idea of the internationalization of the renminbi. And that's something that China has I- implicitly and explicitly uh, pushed for over the past decade. But it hasn't been terribly successful. I mean, they, they definitely have the Belt and Road Initiative that has uh, hundreds of countries around the world that are accepting some of this BRI funding and working towards infrastructure projects, whether that be a bridge or an electricity grid or whatever the case may be. Now, a lot of those loans that are tied into the Belt and Road Initiative are denominated in renminbi. So you'll have a construction company in Africa that will receive renminbi. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that you know, if you want to use that renminbi, you either have to change it into your local currency or you hire a Chinese company to do the work. And so in many cases, if you look at the BRI projects around the world, either the money is earmarked that it has to be used with a Chinese company or there's really no other choice because, uh, you know, switching the renminbi into local currency would devalue it by you know, 5 or 10%, depending on the strength of the currency that you're moving into. So there has been some discussion that the China's central bank digital currency could be used to internationalize the renminbi. Now, how that works still remains to be seen. One of the things that the government has been very closed on is the functionality around the DCEP wallet. Uh, so in terms of who can get it and how it can be used. Because if anybody around the world could all of a sudden just download this Chinese central bank digital currency wallet and start using uh, B or this e renminbi in their local uh, environment, uh, that's good for the international acceptance of the renminbi, but it also brings some challenges around the capital controls around that. So it's still a little bit to be determined about how the um, the wallet will be able to be used outside of China. So most certainly Chinese nationals, any Chinese national, at least once we get past this pilot period, will be able to download one of these wallets, you know, associate it with their national ID. And and onboard themselves to be able to use this either with their bank or directly, but you know, for for you sitting in the U.S. Or, or or in Singapore, you know, for us to be able to download a wallet and actually use it, there may be some more restrictions on that. And the other aspect of that is just because you have access to the capital doesn't necessarily mean that your money is a reserve currency. I mean, the the fact that oil and commodities largely are priced in US dollars means that the US dollar has that reserve currency status and so even if the RMB becomes an e RMB you still have those challenges about the commodities and and some structural macroeconomic considerations that need to be addressed before it becomes more widely used but certainly that that overseas usage is something that the government the Chinese government is certainly looking at and potentially one of the reasons
0: that they're launching this uh, and pushing to get it done as quick as they can. And, and clearly a move in the right direction, right? This is, uh, it just it just uh, it improves the prospects of down the line, the renminbi being considered a global currency. Although point taken, it's, it's, it's still got a long way to go. Hey, listen, I have one last question for you on this. Who serves to lose if digital currencies take off? I suspect it's the intermediaries, the retail banks, credit card companies, and all the tech providers that support the traditional finance industry. Am I right? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, again, it depends on the implementation, but potentially that could be the case. I mean, when you look at China's um, digital currency electronic payment system, DCEP, uh, the idea is that it will be distributed through the commercial banks. So the government will make available, you know, a a trillion renminbi of this e-renminbi on the platform, and then that money will be distributed to commercial banks, and the commercial banks will gradually distribute that out to uh, retail and commercial customers. Uh, But you know very well the, the all of the main records are being held by the central bank. Uh, so in theory, in particular implementations, you could bypass the commercial banks and move directly to um, the individuals and and likewise, as you mentioned with the payment processors, if a merchant, uh, you know, today in China, if a merchant wants to start accepting Alipay, they just don't download the Alipay app and they can nearly immediately start accepting payments and and sending payments using that uh, app. There's no need for the bank to come in and install point of sale hardware uh, in the branch. You just need some kind of smart device that can scan a QR code. In theory, the the DCEP will work in a similar way, such that you could uh, you just download the wallet and you're in business. One of the things that we've seen from governments around the world as well is, is when they implement these kind of innovations in domestic payment systems, like here in Singapore is a good example, the PayNow real-time payment system or real-time payment rails. It's an overlay service uh, that sits on the real-time payments infrastructure here in China is free to use for individuals and so that will likely be the case in china as well Is that it's free for individuals to move money to each other or to pay to merchants companies may pay a small amount to process the payments um, but they may not even pay either Um, so we've been arguing in general over the past couple of years that payments globally is a race to zero if you look at the the merchant take rates the the merchant discount rates at for credit card transactions in most geographies around the world those are dropping in markets like China you have the competitive nature of alipay and wechat pay that are driving down payment um, costs and then when you look at cross border remittances you have companies like transferwise and neum that are replacing traditional banks in providing these services so you know, not to make too big of a philosophical point on it, but I think banks in general are going through an existential crisis of what, their, what is their role in this new economy that's being created around them. And I think this digital currency would just be one of those questions that they need to ask themselves is like, what value am I providing to my customers if this comes into play? Because no longer do the customers really need me to be the custodian of their cash. In particular cases, they may not need me if they need to borrow money. So then what is my role going forward, uh, especially when this this power is kind of taken away from me? So it's a a really good question and it remains to be seen. Certainly China would be one of the first countries to go through that. But, you know, in most countries, the financial... Uh, industry represents double-digit contribution to national GDP. So it's certainly something that governments around the world need to ensure doesn't fall apart. But the question then remains, What what is their new role uh, in that?
0: Yeah, I have to say, uh, cash is no longer king, and and for sure, I'll never look at my leather wallet the same way again. You've ruined it for me. But uh, you are a, a wise and a <laughs> and, 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 and wizened individual. Uh, Zenit, thank you so much for, uh, for the education on this. It's, uh, it looks like there's going to be lots of activity uh, across the region, and particularly in China, in coming months. And we'll circle back, um, see how things are progressing in a few months. Uh, uh, thank you for spending time with us on Inside Asia.
1: Thank you for having me, Stephen. My pleasure.
0: was my conversation with Zenin Capron, founder and director of Capron Asia, a Singapore-based boutique strategy and research firm serving the fintech sector. In order to fully appreciate the move to digital currencies, it's important to understand what's at stake. As Zenin has so eloquently explained, there are multiple reasons to trade out cash for a digital alternative, but it carries with it some risks, not so much for central banks, but more for end users. Privacy is the biggest issue, which, if you think about it, is likely a lead reason for China's move to aggressively adopt such a plan. Eliminate privacy and you wipe out corruption, or so the thinking goes. Watch Group Transparency International ranks China the 80th most corrupt country among a cohort of 198. That's cause for concern. By some estimates, corruption wipes out up to 3% per annum of the country's GDP. To keep a check on the problem, the government will from time to time carry out well-orchestrated crackdowns rounding up crooked government officials and unethical business leaders. The penalties are severe, death in some cases. Technology may prove a more effective means of reining in corruption while allowing absolute traceability. In a perfect world, this would mean a move towards greater transactional efficiency. Money would securely flow between payer and payee with no questions asked. Say goodbye to the payoffs, skimming, and black market activities that hamper economic performance and bolster organized crime. Conversely, governments can trace everything down to each cup of coffee and every bus fare. Some might say, what's the big deal? If you use a credit card or a digital wallet now, your bank or telco provider has as much information if not more. But this is China, a place where monitoring takes on a whole new meaning. Every dystopian scenario has its silver lining, I think. Take user convenience, for instance. Load a smartphone with a digital wallet or a digital currency app, and you eliminate the need to dig into your wallet and exchange paper currency. In a time of COVID where the goal is to avoid germs and disease, digital exchange looks a lot safer and healthier, and that in and of itself could mobilize change. There's room in this story for geopolitics as well. China desperately wants recognition for its economic power and prestige, and one way to achieve that is to elevate a national currency to internationally acceptable standards. Currently, the U.S. dollar serves as a global currency of choice. There are historical reasons for this as well. The Chinese renminbi, in comparison, is still in its infancy. Some argue that a move to digital could give the renminbi a reputational boost, expediting its rise among currencies. It's debatable, but for China, there's nothing to lose. A digital currency would also shine the light on China as a technology leader. Already, the country has stated ambitions to become a leader in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robotics. Aggressive goals have been set, and the government actively funds its top tech firms in pursuit of this goal. Launching the world's first digital currency would go a long way in demonstrating the country's high-tech ambitions and bolster its reputation as a global leader. Pull it off, and it's another arrow in the quiver of China's superpower ambition. All in, I guess you could say there's more to a digital currency than meets the wallet. That's it for this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. And as always, we thank you for listening. If you're not already a loyal Inside Asia listener, please subscribe today. Search for Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts. It's entirely free, and there are over 140 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia, on Asia. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, come in from the outside on Inside Asia.